Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. I got to tell you, I say this all the time, but I am so hyped up and jazzed about this call today because we've got a guy on with us. His name's Sean Pete. And I met this guy last year, which we'll get into the details on that. But every single time that I've seen this guy or see one of his posts or his partner's stories or anything, I just get a sense of energy, even on the other side of Instagram. And I knew getting on this call, I've been on podcasts all day and I was excited for this one. It's the last one of the day and I'm just stoked. So Sean, thank you for being on the show. Mike, I'm thrilled to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. So we, we got to start with the four questions because that's what we do all the time. Who yeah. has had the greatest impact on your life? I think, gosh, I think, uh, man, I've had a, a bunch of wonderful people in my life. I, I would default to my dad. My, my dad was, uh, uh, my dad was as honest as dinner on the ground. Um, just, you know, worked hard, was honest. I remember, you know, him getting letters about stopping and helping people change their tires on the way home. Like he was just, and, and would never breathe a word of it. You know, my, he'd be late for dinner and my mom would be giving him hell and he wouldn't say that he stopped and, you know, change some family's tire on the side of the road. And he was just, he went through life with a degree of humility that was um, uh, unmistakable. And, you know, and I think more recently, my wife, um, I'm uh, probably the luckiest guy on this planet, man. And just uh, found a, a woman that um, speaks to the better angels of my nature and really like, truly makes me the best version of myself. So very fortunate. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, I can, I, I don't, I don't know Sean that well, but I can reinforce that when you were talking about the humility and, and all that. So last year, the event that I was talking about, I went to an event with uh, Kyle Depius and which is how Sean and I got connected. And at that event, um, Sean and Mike Metcalf, uh, have a company called deck leadership, which we'll get into that. It's basically a NASCAR like pit team, but also at the same time, they've got a whole leadership, um, team building all this stuff on the backside. But what I was really impressed by, and just bringing this back to what you said, about the humility. Um, you guys are obviously a very intense team working in a very intense organization. You guys are like men's men, like ex hockey players, ex football players, but you guys are like, you're intense, but also the humility that I saw there and your leadership abilities and the way you guys treat each other is just phenomenal. So that's been passed down to you, man. I want to honor you and, and you mirror what you said there. Well, thank you, Mike. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. I was inspired, man. That's just a zone of inspiration. I'm just so excited to be here with you. So um, if you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would it be? That's easy. I was, uh, it was my freshman year at Dartmouth. I'm, uh, I'm from a small town, small logging town on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Uh, my dad's a mechanic. My mom's an esthetician. So I grew up middle, lower socioeconomic class. And really, you get out of town by playing hockey. That's it. And um, I was fortunate enough to go to Dartmouth. And I just remember my freshman year arriving there, and I was shocked by the affluence. I'd never seen money like that. Mm. Um, but was, what was so striking to me, Mike, was that these kids had everything that I was told that you're supposed to want in life, right? The clothes, the shoes, the cars, um, the places they'd been. And 
they, a lot of them were inherently miserable. Mm. And a lot of them had these awful relationships with their parents. And although they were rich, they didn't have a richness of life that we had growing up. And like, like it was really formative for me. Like it hit me over the head. And, um, you know, the greatest impact it had on me is that from that moment, I promised myself that I would chase joy the rest of my life. Mm. Like Dartmouth's a big banking school. I could have left Dartmouth and gone to wall street for $60,000 a year. Instead, I went to the Texas hockey league for 300 bucks a week. Um, <laughs> because I knew that I would have fun doing that. And I, and I, I'm a true believer that if you're doing what lights you up at night, you're going to be great at it. Right. Cause you don't need an alarm clock. You don't need, like you're jazzed to get out of bed. And, um, by not chasing money, I felt like it's it's followed me wherever I've gone. But it's it's chasing joy has been the I think the thing that's really impacted me. I love that. My wife always says, when you stop chasing money, money starts chasing you, and it's just putting it in the right perspective, right? She's dead on, man. Yeah. She's dead on. I also love what you just said, um, and I don't know if this is a something you say all the time, but rich doesn't create richness. Like that's not that, like I was mind blown. Well, well, and that's just it. Like, imagine, like, imagine chasing something like that, like just a number in a bank account. Like we talk about all the time, what's your finish line in life, mm. right? Because for all of us, it's six feet in the ground. And, but for some of us, it's, it's a number in your bank account or it's a certain car or a ski house. Mm. Um, but if that's what you're chasing, a lot of times when you get it, it's pretty hollow when you get there. Yeah. You know, my wife was uh, in extended care for, for decades, you know, so she spent a lot of her time with people in the last hour, last minute, last seconds of their life. Hmm. And not once did any one of them ever talk about any of that stuff. Hmm. Right. So again, it's what, what's important in your life. Right. And, uh, um, again, those things make me go a certain way. And that's why, like, I love your message. I, and I've connected with you and Kyle, cause I, I, you know, I feel like you guys have a different version of success. Hmm. Right. And, and I, I love that. And that's the kind of tribe of people I want to be around. Yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And that's been my thing all along is like, um, I, the, the, just even the whole investment investing for freedom conversation, like what I really want is to own my time. And, but there is a lot of other things that I want in life that, that require, uh, you know, I mean, it, you don't have to be rich. I don't have to be overly wealthy, but I want to be able to go wherever I want, whenever I want, I want to, you know, create a good life for my kids. But I love what you said rich doesn't equal richness. And so you don't need billions of dollars. You don't even need hundreds of millions of dollars or even 20 millions of dollars. It's your life. You set it, you decide what you want and then just figure out how to get it. So it's not a number. It's a lifestyle that you want. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. I thought I've never heard that till I started hearing you guys talk about investing to buy time. You're buying time back, right? Which is, I mean, the most valuable resource we have, mm -hmm. but it's, I've never heard it put that way. And I think it's brilliant. And, um, I think, like I said, I, I think that when people start realizing that it's, it's a whole different game plan that from there, mm. you know, cause if you're going after just money, you're never going to have enough. Yeah. You know, if you're going after just fancy cars, you're never going to have enough fancy cars. Yeah. There has to be something that's more fulfilling at the end of it. I love it. I love it. You know, and when you were talking about Dartmouth too, and showing up, what popped in my head that I've said forever is, you know, money doesn't change you. It just magnifies you. So if you're an asshole, when you've got $10 in your bank account, you're going to be an asshole. When you have a million, you're going to be an asshole when you have a billion. But honestly, like if you're a happy person with $10, you're going to be a happy person with a million dollars. So it's not rich doesn't equal richness. I love that. Like that's going to be, I'm going to be like Sean Pete said, well, you might, you want to know uh, the person who said the exact same thing to me that you just said when we were, um, 
uh, when I was at Chip Ganassi Racing as a Jackman, Talladega Nights was filmed at Chip Ganassi Racing. So a bunch of us got picked to be in that movie. And it was funny because Will Ferrell is one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Mm. And another person in that movie, which we won't name, was kind of a an idiot. Mm. And uh, we were all sitting looked down with Will one day and we're like, how come you're the star and you're the nicest guy on the set and this guy's like the C guy and he treats everyone terribly. And he said exactly what you said. Wow. He said, money magnifies what you are. And I've never forgot that. So, And I haven't heard it since you just said it right now. So you're, you're totally right, man. Wow. I, I'm I'm in the likes of Will Ferrell now. You like, are, you <laughs> I'm are. Just I'm just kidding. That's super cool. Yeah, you guys stay with us because you know, I mean, just like what he just said, and you actually can see you in in the in the movie. You've got you've got some some roles in the movie, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah I love it. Non-speaking roles. The only reason I got in, Mike, was because uh, I had just finished a career in the, uh, the minor leagues of hockey. Mm. And so all these people from California come out, and they're making a NASCAR movie. So they take headshots of twenty-six of us. Well, I played in the minors. I had seven goals in eight years, but I had a thousand penalty minutes. And I also had only about four teeth in my mouth. So I fit with their oh. idea of what a NASCAR person would be. So I was a shoe in to get into this movie. So um, it was a cool experience, man. Some I would never do again, but it was, uh, it was awesome. I love it. Yeah. So stick with us because we're going to get through these questions, but then Man, Sean's background, your background is just so inspiring in the stories and the way you got through it. But, um, you know, the guys that you've assembled and the teamwork and all that. So stick with us. We got to get through the questions. But uh, what was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? Um, my greatest setback was uh, my second year pro. I had a great first year in Texas and wanted to make the National Hockey League. So I went out and found the hardest coach in the country to play for. Mm -hmm. It was a guy named John Brophy up in Hampton Roads, Virginia. So I go up there, um, and it's probably the most brutal camp I've ever been through, three a days, and, and just really rough. And there's only six spots. Um, Fourteen guys are coming back. So we go through camp, and I, there's two exhibition games at the end, and I make it through camp, make it to the first exhibition game. We go up to Richmond, Virginia, play their arch rival, and uh, I get in a fight. Uh, we lose 3-1 and the coach is furious. So we drive back to Hampton Roads. The next night, that game is in Hampton Roads. I make the lineup for that night. We play the game. Uh, we lose 5-1. I have an assist in the game. There are zero fights. The end of the game, right, so both nights I contributed. At the end of the game, we all come off the ice, and the coach is furious. Comes into the locker room. You know, all the, all the veterans are in their suits. All these guys trying to make it are in their stalls. And he comes in and he screams, where's number 20? And I was number 20. So I, 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 wrote, I raised my hand. And he's like, number 20, take your effing skates off. And, Mike, I didn't know what, he, what was going on, so I just started untying them. And I hand them to him, and he rips them out of my hands, and he throws them in the garbage. And he turns to me and he says, you don't effing deserve to play hockey. Now, this is a guy I went looking to play for, mm. right? And I grew up, you know, pretty tough in this vision of myself, and, and he's telling me the complete opposite. So, anyways, I come back to the rink the next morning. They cut me, and when you get cut in East Coast League, you go on waivers, and I have every coach around the country calling me saying, hey, I like your size, but we heard you're soft. I like your size, but we, we heard you don't like the rough stuff. So, basically, I'm losing my mind. And um, next call is a guy, Rick Aduno, head coach in South Carolina, I said, Rick, I don't care. I don't care. I, all I need to know is who is Hunter Rose's biggest rival. And he said, we are. And he was in South Carolina. So I said, I don't care what you're going to pay me. I'm coming. So I go down. They gave me a bus ticket to go to Charleston, South Carolina, 
And the last thing I do before I get on the bus is I buy a paper and, you know, I fall asleep and, you know, I didn't sleep a lick that night. And about halfway to Charleston, I wake up, I'm like, okay, I have a new opportunity. Let's go. And I open up the paper and the sports section reads admirals make cuts. And about a third of the way down, it says, uh, Hampton roads coach, John Brophy said the biggest disappointment of camp was Dartmouth defenseman, Sean Pete. He came to camp looking like captain America, but played like Miss America. Uh. So, so in the, in this 48 hour span, I've had some guy just try to emasculate me and my hockey career and tell me I don't deserve to play. Um, and one thing that always served me well, Mike was, uh, I've always thought, you know, never, never put a period where life intended a comma. Mm. And had I let John Brophy define me that day, I would have stopped playing hockey. Two years later, I was on the ice for the finals of the Calder Cup finals in the American Hockey League, which is one step away from the NHL. So that um, that was certainly my greatest setback in, in, in uh, along the path. How did uh, just this is a random question, but it's, I'm curious how never let a period get put where a comma belongs. Did did you come up? with that or no it's 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 a to paraphrase an old uh gracie allen quote my dad said that because i failed i will get into it but i have a very unique relationship <laughs> with failure um when you're not talented failure tends to show up uh, more often than not but uh you know it, it, they were great in preparing me for the path right i think um you know they always talked about like you know john brophy you know, and other people like their opinion of you is none of your business. Mm. That's their business. Your business is how you react to it. And, and what we do a lot of times is we, we take on these self-limiting beliefs because of things we hear other people say mm -hmm. that's on us. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to do that. We, we allow that yeah. and you have the power to choose. And I, my parents, um, I just think they did a great job, like getting me ready for, for what was to come. That's awesome. What, what a story. What is the piece of advice you find yourself sharing the most? Um, that success doesn't reward the wrong person. And I'm sure you have people on here being like, oh, that's not true because I know this guy and, and he's successful and he, um, you know, he's not the nicest person or he does, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and that's not how we define success. Uh, success is loving what you do, loving how you do it and loving who you are while you do it. And, uh, so we say it all the time, success doesn't reward the wrong person. So whether that's, you know, we have kids that come in uh, before we get there at work in the morning and they stay till we turn the lights out. Those are the kids that make it, mm -hmm. you know, but, but the kids that don't make it are the ones that just do what the requisite stuff, Yeah. you know? And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think that that speaks to exceptional efforts and, and those are the people we want around us. I love it. I've, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think there's a lot of principles that exist in the world, no matter what your faith is or what you believe. I think there's certain principles in the world. And, you know, one of the things that my wife and I, I there, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, given, it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. And I'm like, that's just a principle. So I could be uh, not like a, a faith, you know, God believing guy and give, and it'll still be given back to me. It's just a principle in life. And so I right. like... I like the way you said that because the, well, and actually this is a big part of what you guys, the, like you, the entire time we were at your facility, you were talking about that. I mean, these guys, you work, you work with the best of the best, but they work their ass off, right? It's not just talent. It's you guys work your ass off. They do. And, and I mean, when we, when Mike and I took that program over, it was a dumpster fire. 
both teams were ranked outside the top 25. Um, and it wasn't because we weren't talented. We were really talented. We were lazy, we were entitled, and we were selfish. So, you know, what we did is we put two things on the board. First, um, we're going to put nothing above being a world-class human being. Those are the kids we went after. And second, we're going to put more sweat on the floor than anybody. Mm. So when we put those two things in play, what it did is it made us cut ties with some really talented people to the point where our bosses were questioning our hiring. Mm. Um, but you either believe it or you don't. Mm. And, and um, you know, we set about, uh, you know, down that path. And three years later, we had both of those teams in the top five. Wow. That's amazing. Well, yeah. let, let's, let's double back a little bit. Let's just tell people like who you are, what you do. Cause I mean, we've already talked about a lot of stuff. Like you just turned an entire team around, but I don't know that like we really know what you do. Yet. <laughs> sure. So, um, again, uh, grew up on Vancouver Island, came to the United States on a hockey scholarship, uh, played four years at Dartmouth, um, played eight years in the minor and accidentally got into NASCAR a bunch of years ago. And currently I am the pit crew coach for chip ganassi racing um we laughingly refer to it as the department of unrealistic expectations because uh, our job is to train five people to change four tires and put 18 gallons of fuel in a race car in 12 seconds Jeez, yep that's crazy it is crazy and for those of you that aren't familiar with the pit crew uh it's made up of five members there's a gas man which mike is and um he has to carry a hundred pound can of fuel on his shoulder and have it plugged into a race car in 0.3 seconds. There's a tire carrier that has to deliver two 65 pound tires to the right side of the car and have it mounted on the hub in under 0.8 seconds. There's a Jack man, which you're familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> um, that has to lift a 3,500 pound race car with one stroke of the Jack. And people ask us all the time, what's it like to be a NASCAR pit crew person? If you want to want to know what it's like to be a Jack man, go out to the interstate Put your heels on the white line and turn your back to traffic. And if traffic blowing by you inches off your heels doesn't unnerve you, you have what it takes to be a pit crew person. And then finally, there's two tire changers, and they have to hit five lug nuts in under a second. What's like? What's a what's an average pit time that you guys are like functioning? Well, at? right now we're we're fighting with another team. Uh, average for that team is about twelve point two. Um, we set the fastest time in Richmond, 11.8, and then we went 11.6 in Talladega, and then we went 11.5 in Kansas, and then a team just went 11.4 last week in Dover. So we're going to Coda on Saturday trying to get it back. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I had no concept whatsoever. I've watched NASCAR. Like, I've, I had zero concept. And so even for our listeners, like, you watch it, it's one thing, but to watch you guys there actually doing it, hearing it, feeling it, and then – because of what you guys do, like we actually got to experience that, which was super cool. Well, and that's just it. Like, like I think, you know, I think a lot of people have preconceived notions of NASCAR that, you know, it's just these rednecks or hillbillies or whatever it is, you know, and that's what I thought when I first was introduced to it. But like you look at our team and you met Marshall McFadden, mm -hmm. um, you know, our team's made up of, you know, we have a linebacker from the Steelers. We have a linebacker that Dabo Sweeney built Clemson around. We have an all-American baseball player. We've had two United States Navy SEALs. We've had an Olympic swimmer. Um, so, like, the athletic acumen of, of our team is is impressive when you start putting it down on paper. Um, you know, and, and it, it's what's amazing is what you can accomplish when you come together. Mm -hmm. And and pit stops are, are, are kind of an amalgamation of all these things, of, of, of vertical thinking and hard work and teamwork and, you know, that's how kind of deck was born. You know, we started hearing a lot of um, talk in corporate America about how business owners wanted their teams to operate like pit crews. Mm. 
and, and not knowing what that was. And, uh, you know, still to this day, a lot of businesses bring us in and they think we're going to give them a process. But operating like a pit crew is elevating people over process. Mm. It's about building a culture where people feel valued and cared about. And what you do is you inspire human brilliance. If you can inspire human brilliance within your company, you're going to destroy everyone you're going against. <laughs> I'm just like blown away because when I was in your facility and you guys, you know, you, you obviously took us through the facility and showed us, you guys have a, I, I was just looking at this. This is one of my favorite things that I saw when I was there. Um, you guys got signs everywhere, but one of the signs that I loved was on the back door and it says the road from good to great is the steepest road there is. And this right. is the kind of, it, at the end of that, it says, um, I think it was, it's, it's you versus yes. Yesterday. Yeah. Yep. And I just love the way I want to, I want to pull this together. What you just said. Um, I love the way, cause you've got all these athletes, like, you know, they're, they're, they're athletes, but at the same time to get down to 11.4 seconds, like what's the difference between an 11.4 team and like, what are some of the slower guys? What, what are they running? Like a 13, 16 or a 14, 16. It's one person. You know, a lot of times a, a picker is a true, a true example of only being as strong as your weakest link. And the lesson for companies in there is our team. That's great. Had one guy that was kind of holding them up a little bit, mm. but instead of just spitting the guy out or talking bad about him, they tried to help him along. Right. Cause a rising tide lifts all ships. They understood that if we can get this guy better, we operate more efficiently as a team. Mm -hmm. So they bring them along. They do extra practice. They watch more film. And now they're the best team in NASCAR. Yeah. Whereas a lot of times we look at the weakest link and try to cull them from the herd or whatever. But, but again, we have guys that rally around each other, you know, try to get, you know, him trained up. Sometimes that doesn't always work out like that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's, it's, that's can be the difference is one person. You know, and that sign that you 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 speak of—it's one with all the greasy fingerprints on it. It's the one that's leading out to pit practice. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we're big on, and the only way that you're going to be able to operate it—you know, do an 11-second pit stop, right? Because that's right on the verge of human possibility. And for us, that starts with our arrival mindset. So we're big in our program um, that thoughts are things. Hmm. You know, and the view that you adopt for yourself profoundly affects the way that you live your life. So what we challenge our people with is their rival mindset. When you put your hand on the door leading into work, who are you showing up as? Because we want the very best version of you. We want the version that's the hardest working. We want the version that's the most collaborative, that's the best experience, that's the kindest. Because we, we can win with people like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we say all the time, like, if I were to ask you, um, like, if you bought, what, what was the last car, what was the last car you bought? Uh, uh, Audi Q8. Okay. What color? Uh, brown. Brown. Okay. When you bought that car, right? When you decide, okay, I'm going to go with the Audi. I'm going to go with this color. What happened? Do you start seeing other brown Audi? Oh yeah. 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 Totally. It happens to all of us, correct? Yeah. yeah. So if your brain works like, if your brain works like that for something as simple as a car buying experience, mm -hmm. what do you think it does when you show up to work and think, oh, Monday's going to suck? or God, we have too much work to do, or this is going to be a long day. Yeah. You, I mean, you cut your feet out from yourself before mm -hmm. you even gotten into the building. Totally. So we'll literally send guys back out through the door. If we think their arrival mindsets off yeah. and, and how they show up, like I said, that you versus yesterday, we're human beings. We do not stay the same. We get better or we get worse. Yeah. So you have a choice when you put your hand on the door. I love it. One of my mentors, Dan Sullivan always said the eyes only see and the ears only hear what the brain is looking for. 
Um, and you know, when you're saying that the, the brown Audi and I hesitated because I'm colorblind and I'm like, I think it might be black. Like <laughs> that was a stupid little side note. Cause it has nothing to do with the principle, but, um, yeah, I love that. The eyes only see and the ears only hear what the brain is looking for. And you guys have literally, um, you know, elevated it and you feel this, like it's literally a feeling in your organization, like in it's this huge facility, but you can feel it with you guys. You guys are like so intense. Even the guys that aren't saying anything, you can just feel them. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, and, and I think, like I said, I think we have 26 of the best people on this planet and, uh, we're very proud of our group. And, um, you know, that's the biggest compliment that can be paid to Mike is I, is that when people come in, they feel, they feel a different vibration from our guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's something that every time it's said is we never take it lightly because it's a huge, huge compliment. I love it. And, and it's interesting to me because that didn't happen by accident. So I really saw something there. I paid a lot of attention to you guys when I was in that facility because I I know that, you know, there's the old saying birds of a feather flock together. Well, that may be true to a certain degree, but even if you guys assembled around each other, it wouldn't be the level that you've brought it to. So I'm super interested to just continue the conversation and see how you did what you did. I have a question though. Yeah. So you talked about like, you know, holding the, or calling the herd and, you know, getting rid of the weakest guy and all that. I agree with that. And I feel that from you guys, but how do you, how do you vet that on the front end? Because, you know, it's not like, um, if you're going to, the rising tide lifts all ships. I mean, obviously you got to have guys that are committed and uh, so what, how do you do that? Yeah. So we have a very highly curated first day at Chip Ganassi racing. Mm. So our competitors are out scouting the big 10 and the sec and and the PAC 12. We don't do that. Anyone in the country can come to Chip Ganassi racing at 8am on Monday. If you show up at 8 a.m., you're gone. You show up at 7.30, 7.45, you get a check mark and you move on. Okay? And then you watch practice. And you saw what pip stop practice mm-hmm. is like, right? There's lots of greasy, dirty work, cleaning tires and mm-hmm. jacks. And, and you're going to watch two and a half hours of that. If you pick up a rag and jump into that work unprompted, you get a check mark and you move on. If you don't, you're gone. Um at that point, we go up the hill, and we have the hardest workout of the week on Wednesday, and it's a nightmare. Um, and we don't ask you to lift the most weight or jump the highest. We just want to see if you can get through it, right? You're going to fail with pit stops. We want to see if you have the fortitude to get through it. We had a kid throw up in the middle of it one time, come back and finish, and he thought he was gone. We loved it. Spoke volumes about him. Mm. So now imagine this, Mike. You're on campus. You're around Marshall McFadden, right? That's a big dude. Yeah. You're around 26 alpha males. You're absolutely vapor locked from the workout. Yeah. And I'm just going to come up to you and be like, hey, break the group up for me, please. So now you have to call everyone in, get the hands in the middle, and say something that inspires the group. That's hard to do. Yeah. Shows us how you handle pressure. Mm. So if that goes well, you get a check mark. We send you to lunch uh, with four of our guys. They're going to kind of download you a little bit and come back and report to us. If they like you, um, you're going to sit down with Mike and I, and we have a five-page questionnaire. Hmm. And we're going to ask you things like, um, tell me something that you believe in that no one agrees with you on. Um, tell me something you failed at. Who, who is the best? Who does it the best in the position you are after? Right? We're asking these questions. I don't care what your GPA is. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how many touchdown passes you threw. We're looking for world-class human beings. <laughs> and what we're doing is, you know, everyone shows up as their representative, right? The best version of themselves, right? Uh, there's a quote out there. It says, uh, even a donkey can look like a thoroughbred for the first two interviews, <laughs> right? It takes us two or three years to train one of these guys. I need to know if I got a donkey or a thoroughbred as mm. soon as I can. So we're very intentional about our onboarding, like how we hire. 
And we, what we do is we put obstacles in the way that reveal people's character. Like a lot of times when they come back from lunch, we'll throw a piece of, we'll just crumple up a ball of paper and throw it in the hallway. And if the kid picks it up and throws it in the garbage, yeah. it speaks to an owner mentality. Mm-hmm. You win with people with ownership mentalities. And, but, but a lot of us, we get dazzled by the Ivy League resume. Yeah. Right? I graduated with high honors from the Ivy League. I saw kids drink their way through four years. I'm going to take a kid that worked a night shift to go through a community college. Um, I'm, I'm betting on that kid before I'm betting on the other, on the other one. That makes so much sense. And you know, when you said that, like, you know, pulling the guys up, like I knew there had to be some kind of like process behind that. Cause I mean, not everybody's going to make it. So that's, that's powerful, man. And like what it does is it, 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 forbids us from going for the eye candy, mm-hmm. right? Like I'll get a kid in that was a running back at Wisconsin or something like that. And he looks the part and you, you know, and you're just like, Oh man, this kid's going to be unreal. But if he doesn't have the character we're looking for, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So if, if all these are non-negotiables, then we don't get mesmerized by some guy that, you know, is, is, you know, that might trick us with, with his look and his ability, but just wouldn't be a fit. Yeah. I, I love, I, I love the, the entire process behind that. And obviously you guys are, are working through it, but when you're talking about like, you're on the border of, did you say that, that 11 two is on the border of, how, of, of what's of human possibility really? Yeah. And I'm just sitting here thinking back to watching you guys do it and seeing, okay, so 11 two. And I think like when you guys take us through it and you sample it, I don't know, you're probably doing more 20 second speed or something like, yeah. cause I can't even like, we can't even see what you're doing at 11 to like, you guys are moving so fast. Like I right. couldn't even see it. I couldn't even. Right. I, and you guys saw our, our, you guys saw our development team. Yeah. Right? Like you didn't see, you didn't even see our mains. You know, like when our main guys go, it's, it's impressive. We have a kid that can hit five lug nuts in 0.47 seconds. What? It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's just insane. So for context, we got to do this, which is what you do in your training. So you guys have a whole training thing where the car's actually there and you got the the team and we get to actually break up into teams and do the competition. Give me yeah. some context. I can't remember what our speeds were, but like, what's the new, is it like a minute and 30 seconds or something or what does yeah, it take Yeah, so us? like when you guys first started off, you know, you, you know, we train you guys, you get the, the first go and that first go is usually about a minute and 10 seconds. Okay. Right. And then what, what happens? You guys all come back together. You start talking with each other. Mm -hmm. You start looking how other people are doing things. And then when you guys came back, it went to 41 seconds. Mm. And so you, you made it 25% more efficient like that. And then you came back and then you went to 30 seconds. Mm. Right. But every time, what did you do? You guys stopped, gathered up, listened to each other's ideas and went back at it as a team. Yeah. Think about all the misses, all the misses in business, mm. right? A, a lot of times, you know, think of that as a business, you know, a poorly run business running a one minute pit stop. Well, only, only the CEO is going to come back because no one else's voice matters. Yeah. Right. He's going to put that thing into play. Um, not inspire anyone else. So you're going to go back. You're not going to run a 40. You're going to run another minute pit stop. Mm. Right. So there's all these lessons that parallel business that exist within pit stops. Um, you know, you had to jack the race car. That was your job. Yeah. And for a long time, that's all the NASCAR jackman had to do. Right. But what did you do on your second stop that you didn't do on your first? You pulled the tire, right? Yeah. yeah. That wasn't your job. Your job was the jackman. Yeah. But you had finished your job and it was going to help this other department on the race car. Yeah. And it didn't take, it didn't take away from your job. You pulled the tire 
and the whole thing gets better. Yeah, totally. Right? It starts speaking to cross-departmental collaboration, how, you know, just because my part's done, if I can help this part of the business too, we're all going to succeed. Goes back to that rising tide lifts all ships theory. I love it. And then that's what, again, it's, um, you spoke about it earlier about abundance. Yeah. Right. So many people have this scarcity mindset that is just, I got to do this and get mine so I can get up the, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from abundance. I took abundance and still abundance remained. Wow. And it just, you know what, when I heard that, Mike, I just heard that recently and I love that. And I just think the more people are like that, you know, in your group, you know, between you and harder and Johnny and Kyle and, and, um, Andy and some of the other guys, you could tell you guys were just Givers, like go givers. I, that was the energy that your group gave off. Mm. And that's the people I want to be around in my life, right? Yeah. Because we it's not those scarcity people where it's like, I'm going to gather it all up. It's like, no, there's, there's so much up for all of us out there. Yeah. Let's go get it together. Yeah. Um, so do you guys talk about a lot of this in your book? You guys got a book. It's deck leadership, right? Yes, we do. Um, yeah, we do. We talk about, uh, you know, 12 second culture is basically a story of how we took chip Ganassi racing, um, from outside the top 20 to two of the best teams in NASCAR. Mm. You know, and we talk about things like uh, a rival mindset. We talk about failing quickly and winning with good people. Uh, uh, like I said, vertical thinking and how we, you know, we approach the day um, and all these things that go into building high functioning teams. I love it. And I just want to throw that out there because there's no way we're even going to scratch the surface on, you know, you and your culture and your leadership abilities. But as you were just talking about that, like the abundance comp comment and just the type of people you want to be around. I talk to a lot of business owners who, um, you know, they're growing their companies and everything else. And as a business owner, like we're basically in, in, in your position and watching you the way you are with the guys. I mean, obviously you're an intense guy. You don't put up with any bullshit. The rising tide le uh, lifts all ships. How for the, for the business owner out there that's like, I got to do everything myself. I can't find any good people. Like everybody's dumb. I hear this all the time, Sean. And I'm just like, I have so many amazing employees and I've built so many great businesses and everything else. And it's because I get out of the way and I orchestrate and I watch that with you, but I want to hear it from your perspective. Like how the hell do you keep, you said 27 guys on your team. Yep. Like how the, like, how do you keep these guys motive? You talked about the Wednesday workout and I mean, it's intense. You guys are in an intense yeah. environment and there's no way that if you took that approach that a lot of my audience, they're entrepreneurs, they're investors. If you took the approach of like, you're stupid, get out of my way. Like, let me do it. There's no way you could do an 11.2 pit stop by yourself. Right. Right. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And like I said, we, we want owners. Right. And I think that, um, you know, you want, how do you keep people motivated? You make them feel valued. Mm. You know, I think two things that I think that we do better than anybody is one, it's in the book. It's just, it's the after work phone call. You know, I'll have a late night at, at uh, Ganassi breaking film down or whatever we're doing. And on my way home, I make sure I call one of our guys mm. and, and, and just say, Hey, um, I've noticed the extra effort the last couple of weeks. It doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That creates a profound impact. Mm -hmm. not only a th an unprompted thank you, but you're thinking of that employee outside of work hours. Mm -hmm. You could be thinking of a million other things, but you're not, you're thinking of them. Yeah. And what, what, what are we going to do otherwise? We're going to listen to the radio or we're going to, right. So that's free. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, we also, you know, with technology today, you know, when you come in and do your, uh, your questionnaire, we want to know everything about you. So we get your birthday, your wife's birthday, your anniversary, kids' birthdays. 
and it all goes into a spreadsheet for us. And our phones are alerted five minutes before we walk out to practice. So I have 26 guys out there moving through warm-up. I can put my hand on a kid's shoulder and be like, hey, it's your dad's birthday today. Don't forget to call him. Mm-hmm. There's not that level of care within companies. And, and with the technology that exists out there, it is so easy to care. And, and the thing is, is you start making people feel valued, you're going to start seeing an uptick in performance. You're going to see an uptick in retention. Yeah. And these, these new kids, these millennials, let's make no mistake. These kids are purpose over purse strings. Mm-hmm. You can't incentivize them to stay, Yeah. but you can care about them and they will stay. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said earlier too. You said thoughts are thoughts are things, right? And so when you actually start valuing and appreciating people and, and I don't know, in the back of my mind, I'm hearing, you know, a certain individual type of person saying, well, yeah, but Mike has to set an alarm to do. No, no, that's not what that's about. It's just creating consistency. And you were talking about thoughts or things. Well, when you start uh, valuing somebody, they start feeling valued and then they start creating value because thoughts are things, right? Like when I feel value and I start feeling like I'm a valuable person, I become a valuable person. You're absolutely right. And you'll go through the wall for that owner. And you're operating in that business at a hundred percent. But there's people that um, are operating at 30 or 40% of the business because they hate what they do. They feel like they have no voice mm-hmm. and they feel like they're not valued. Yeah. Right. The second you, you, you make someone feel like you want their gift, not just their work. It's transformative. Yeah. Like that's when you start, that's that human brilliance part where you really start to extract the best out of people. Yeah. And then when you have that kind of energy going, it, it creates two things. It, first of all, it's really clear to see the people that don't fit in your culture anymore. Yeah. And then secondly, like you said, get out of the way, support them, create the environment and get out of the way. Yeah. I, I heard somebody say a while back, I don't even remember who it was or what they were talking about, but they said like, um, you know, we tend to project our internal philosophies, feelings, everything else. And I just, it's interesting because what you project is like, confidence, like growth, you project everyone's important. And I, I see that. And, and then when I hear somebody say, well, I can't trust people. Nobody shows up on time. You know, I'm the only one that can do it. Well, it's kind of like, well, maybe you need to take some, I was just thinking actually like you and Mike came in and were tasked with turning around the team. Why? I, I just, <laughs> because it, like I said, they weren't getting the best out of their people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were just kind of muddling and they went through three different coaches. And I think they picked us because we had a plan and we had conviction, right? Like those first couple of years were not easy. Yeah. Um, you know, when we go back all the way to the start of the podcast, we talk about humility um, and, and, and failure. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're big on in our building is failing quickly. Mm. And Mike and I, as new pit crew coaches, um, one of our biggest wins that first year is we hired who we considered was the best tire carrier in NASCAR. Biggest contract at Ganassi, he comes in, and five races in, it's pretty clear that this guy's toxic, mm-hmm. and he is not what we want to build our culture around. Mm-hmm. So five races in, as brand-new pit coaches, we have to go to our boss, and we're, we're going to let this guy go. So I call this guy in my office, and I'm like, hey, man, we're going to make a change on the 42. And he says, good, who is it? And I said, uh, it, it's you, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think – I think leaders, you know, we don't, first of all, leadership, leadership is a result, right? It's not a position. Yeah. You know, so many of us think that, you know, just because we're the CEO or the boss or whatever, we're the leader. We're not. Yeah. You know, you have to act like a leader to be considered a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you bring those people into your building, um, 
you have a far better chance to succeed. So again, you know, I think where a lot of businesses get it wrong um, is they're willing to deal with the toxicity of that tire carrier mm-hmm. because of the performance, mm-hmm. right? How many companies do you know that hold on to their top salesperson, but the guy's a clown? Yeah. Right? The thing is, if you remove that guy, you might unburden the five people under him and allow them to shine yeah. and they will 10x what that guy or girl was bringing into the business. Yeah. Your culture is only as good as the worst behavior you tolerate. Wow. Yeah, it is. And, and the thing is, is it, it, you have to believe in it or not. And you have to be fiercely protective of your culture. And, um, and those are the teams. That's how you, that's what high performing teams do. I love it. That's so good. I, and I, I, Sometimes we have to learn this the hard way, but I don't know, three years ago. So I don't know if we've even ever talked about this, but I, I've got a fund with a partner and we own 35 manufactured home communities across the country, um, mostly in the Midwest, got employees all over the country. And uh, three, three years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, we went after an all, like we were going to, you know, we're going to hire a COO. Like we went after the best of the best recruiters and found found a guy that would had been with one of the top five operators in the country. I mean, he had the, he had he had the resume, right? He had the experience. He had the, I mean, he had everything. It was a train wreck. Like, I mean, it took us a while to figure, but like you said, he was toxic. And I had employees that had been with us for a while that would literally, they were crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? Like I'd walk in the, why are you crying? I don't want to talk about it. And it took us a while to uncover this. Cause when, when we were together, like everything was said, right. It was, yeah. but you could just feel something was wrong. And so we, it was, it was challenging to work through, but when we finally unearthed what was actually going on, I mean, he was just, he, it was, it was horrible. And I feel bad that we even did that. Like, how did we let this happen? But it was because we were growing and we weren't paying attention and just kind of turned it over to the wrong guy. And it's like, it's such an experience and I'll never do that again. Yeah. But, but again, that's, that's, that's how you use failure, right? That's how you use failure. We're in the failure business. Yeah, Our totally. job is to change four tires in 12 seconds. <laughs> we have a very unique relationship with failure. I'm a failure coach, yeah. um, more than I'm a success coach. Yeah. Um, but it's how you meet failure, right? It's, it's, we ask our guys, like I said, big in our program is failing quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we miss the first lug nut, we ask our guys to hit the next five succinctly, mm-hmm. or if we fail on the right side of the car, fail quickly and be brilliant on the left side of the car. Yeah. But you know, successful people, that's, that's the misconception is so many people think successful people have never failed. Yeah. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? The reason we look up at successful people is because they stand on a mountain of failures. Yeah. They just do two things better than a lot of us. They don't let it stop them mm-hmm. and they don't let it define them. So what you did takes a degree of humility, right? Cause that's a big hire but you could see your company going the wrong way. And that's hard to be like, oh man, we might've messed up. And there's a lot of people that will ride that right into the ground because they're not willing to say that they made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of times you put all your money and time and energy. I mean, we were probably, you'd think, talk about sunk costs and all that stuff. When we put too much focus on money, I mean, we were we were probably 15 months in by the time we pulled the plug on it between recruiting, hiring interviews, you know, money spent, like bonuses, all like, I bet we were 300 grand into this like mistake. Right. And it's easy. It could be easy for an owner to sit back and be like, well, you know what? We've got all this sunk costs in, we've invested so much. We got to keep going. But the reality is you look around and you're actually losing everyone that actually matters and is a team player. And, you know, maybe like you said, maybe they don't have the, the resume from Dartmouth or whatever, but they're the badasses and they're the ones that are being affected negatively. You got it. And, and that's what I mean. We're, we're, 
hunger is such a big thing. You know, you give me a hungry kid, I'm going to take him over a, a veteran any single day. Cause there's, again, like I said, you, you fight all these things like entitlement and laziness and just an apathy, you know, someone that's hungry, they don't come to, they, they don't show up like that. Yeah. They show up wanting to get after it. And, and again, we're going to invest the time on the front side, mm-hmm. right? And, and I know sometimes it's a pain in the ass because you're going to do it a lot. And there's a lot of people that you're going to turn away, yeah. but the ones that you get stay with you. We, we've only had one, we had one guy leave on his own volition. And it was basically because Joe Gibbs tripled his salary and told him not to get on the plane going to Indianapolis. Wow. Yep. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I have to take a second and honor you because not only have I seen it in your facility, not only have I we heard it and seen it today, but when you were talking about leadership and I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but what popped in my head is, um, and I read this years ago and I haven't even thought about it for a while, but in the 21 Laws of Leadership by um, uh, John Maxwell, he talks about the law of influence. And I remember him talking about um, uh, Princess Diana and how she actually had the hearts of the people. And so you could be the prince or you can be the king or you can be the owner or whatever and have the title. That's what you were talking about. You were talking about the title earlier and what popped in my mm-hmm. brain is just like, and I, you know, be in the mirror, like I see it in you. Cause yeah, you have the title, you and Mike have the title, but the reality is you have the influence too. And that's what we've really got a position because those boys respect you, man. You've got like you got the love of your team, but it's because you show that you mirror that to them first. You've got respect and honor and all of that. So I honor you, but thank you for, for mirroring that in life too. Cause it's valuable and it's rare. Well, well, thank you, man. I think, and I think, you know, just from getting to know our short time together, I feel the same about you. And that's so important, right? There's so many CEOs. Uh, one of the things that drives me crazy is when I hear kindness is weakness. Mm. Like that sends me to a thousand degrees. Like I, I get hot and, and you know, it's funny. Cause like, I know some really kind people. Um, let me ask you this. Johnny L. Sasser, he, pretty kind guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, very. Would you, think, would you characterize him as weak? <laughs> not at all. I would not. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And I have about a dozen of those guys in my life, right? So when I hear that, mm-hmm. um, I get irate. But it's, uh, I mean, that's how you want. That's how you want to capture people, yeah. right? Like the people that lead companies, like you said, that oh, everyone's an idiot and this and that, right? And they they put forth this uh, false bravado, mm-hmm. right? This false confidence. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know? Do you want confidence? A confidence man. Do you know what the short is of a confidence man? It's a con man. A con man is short for confidence man. And basically it's someone who's willing to um, win over your confidence so that they can take advantage of you. Yeah. Anytime someone, anytime some owner's coming at you like, oh, I'm this, I'm that. I'm like, wrong, wrong. You know, (laughs) so, and and Mike, we'll go at it with, with, with CEOs, man. Like we want... There are more heart attacks in the United States on Monday morning than any other time during the week. Mm. And that's a direct reflection of people hating their jobs. They hate wow. to go to work. So Monday morning, they just, you know, they have a jammer and they're out. Um, and we want to see, we want to see leadership done better. So like we will get into it with these CEOs about, uh, you know, this one guy, he was, he was one of those guys, you know, you get into companies and you see climbers, right. That they're trying to get up to the sea level. Yeah. And he grabs us after we talked to his company and he's like, guys, you know, what, what advice can you get me to get me to that C level? And we said, okay, well, what you want to be CEO? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, what does the C stand for? He says, it stands for chief. And I said, okay, cool. Well, how, let's think about this. How did a young Indian warrior ascend to the position of chief? 
Mm. He's like, I've never really given it any thought. Well, young Indian warrior, when he sets out, all he's worried about is serving his tribe yeah. or her tribe, right? Yeah. So he wants to make sure the tribe is clothed, is fed, and is protected. Mm. And he serves selflessly to that end. And although his goal is never to become chief because of his actions, he ascends to the position of chief. Wow. And I asked him, I said, hey, what, what, do you know what the number one character trait of a psychopath is? <laughs> it's profound lack of empathy. <laughs> So what sounds more what's going on in this country right now? The, the CEO or the PEO? Wow. So again, if you want to if you want to be a CEO out there, if you're listening to this and you want to aspire to be a CEO, it's easy. Act like a chief. Mm. Care about people. Yeah. That's crazy. That's so good, man. I'm I'm just blown away. I'm like you you got me speechless for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have a low bar, man. I'm telling you. No, no, it's, it's so true though. And you're actually like, so even a few minutes, like when you were talking, you're, you're destroying some, uh, I think some sacred cows in the, in the leadership world. The other thing that I watched about you, um, and I don't remember who we were talking with, but you guys were talking about going bow fishing with fish or something after yeah. this is another sacred cow that like, I think you guys destroy, um, you're with your guys, you're with your people. And I think a lot of times they think there has to be this separation and all this stuff. And I don't see that. No, we're, we're not going to ask those guys to do anything that we're not going to do. Mm -hmm. So if we're, if, if we're taking garbage out, I'm taking garbage out with them. I, uh, if we're asking them to do that brutal workout on Wednesday, I'm right in there doing it with, with them. So like trying to hang with some of these 24 year old kids when you're 46, it's not an easy, <laughs> it's not an easy deal. Um, but again, it's hard to ask someone something you're not willing to do yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the lowest common denominator, uh, we want to be right there with that person. Cause I also know what that feels like. Yeah. Right. And I, 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 you know, I've worked for and played for coaches and bosses. Um, like you said, that felt they have to be separated. Yeah. Now I am separated as far as like, I don't go with our guys to dinner on the road. Um, I don't go when they have parties and stuff. I don't sure. do any of that. Yeah. Um, if they're playing poker, I don't do any of that. So there are certain areas where you don't, yeah. but all the hard stuff, all the not fun stuff, you better be right there with your team. Yeah. Makes sense, man. It's so good. So you guys do all kinds of, I want to make sure that people have the opportunity to, um, you know, we we're about 50 minutes in here, which is amazing. You guys do a lot of training, not only at your home facility, but you do things on the road and, um, what, what are some of the things that you guys offer for like corporate training events, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, um, this was all born out of an opportunity to speak at the NFL combine. And, you know, I think when you're a NASCAR picker coach, you're like, Oh, this is just this thing we do. Yeah. And what was funny is we went up to Indianapolis and we spoke for 30 minutes and we thought it went terrible. And, you know, at the end about 30, you know, uh, NFL personnel were hanging around to ask us questions. And we're leaving the conference hall and this guy tracks us down. He's like, Hey fellas, I took more notes in your 30 minutes than I have the first two days of this, two days of this conference. And we get into this really great talk. And at the end, I'm like, well, Hey man, who are you with? And he said, I'm with the new England Patriots. And right then, Mike, I was like, we have something. Mm -hmm. So what we did is, is we, you know, we wrote the book and we started going into companies um, and trying to build brilliant culture. Um, and, and turn their companies into high-performing teams that operate like pit crews. Um, so it was culture, 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 to the point where we will take the race car to the parking lot of your business, regardless if that's in North Carolina, Orlando, Dallas, on the West Coast, it doesn't matter. 
Um, and we will put the guns and the tires and the gas cans and the jacks in your hands. And we're going to teach you how to operate like a pit crew. Um, and that's all we did. Culture, culture, culture. And then uh, obviously you, you rewind to July of last year and the death of George Floyd. Um, I told you at the start, our number one recruiting criteria is we put nothing about being a world-class human being. Mm. Well, with that, our team has become, uh, it's the most racially diverse pit crew in the history of NASCAR. Wow. Um, we look different than any other team, fastly different than any other team who's ever competed in our sport. And a bunch of companies started, you know, are struggling with this diversity and inclusion message. Mm -hmm. And look, if, if we can make it work in NASCAR, there's not a business in this country that has an excuse. Because I swear to you, it's, a, it's ground zero. <laughs> yeah, I promise totally. you. So we've done a lot of stuff on diversity. And then what we do now is we go into companies, you know, the, the acronym for DEC is diversity, efficiency, culture, and kindness. So we'll what we do is we help companies unite around a singular language. Mm. So we come in and we do a, a, a component on diversity. Then we come in a month and a half later on efficiency, then one on culture and then one on kindness, right? What, what I think a lot of companies struggle with is they bring in, uh, say a Simon Sinek in the first quarter and they're talking about their why. Mm. And then they bring in Jocko in the second quarter and he's talking about carrying a guy out of Fallujah with his leg blown off. There's no continuity of message. Yeah what we're doing is we're embedding with companies to, to really try to dive home. So, you know, you can talk about, Hey, you know, your arrival mindset today is on point and everyone knows what a rival mindset is, mm -hmm. you know, your vertical thinking, you're failing quickly. So all these things that people can unite around, which again, bonds you as a team. Yeah. That's so good. I love it. How much fun you having? Oh man, I, uh, you know what? I never thought this would go where it's gone. I mean, we're working with, with, with monsters like McDonald's and Merck. We worked with the Dallas Cowboys last year. Um, and you know what? It's funny is, uh, my wife often asks how much longer with the NASCAR stuff. And I always tell her as long as they'll have me, cause it's the connectedness to those guys that, uh, I love those guys. I, I like I said, I, I just, um, I love them and I'll stay in it as long as I can. But, you know, we're really passionate about seeing leadership done well and we want to help anyone who wants to be helped. I love it. I've been thinking lately and I just, you, you, you said a few minutes ago that you could never imagined it going where it's gone. Uh, I've yep. been thinking about this lately and it's more of a comment and, you know, get your two cents on it too. But um, I've been reading a book called Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer and it's just kind of shifted some things in my life. And I look backwards 10 years and I think about my life today and there's no way 10 years ago that I could have imagined my life being as great as it is. And so it's really had me thinking, Sean, like, you know, we do a lot of training around one year, five year, 10 year visions in our business and all this stuff. And I'm like, I've really found myself thinking lately, like I need to lean more into my intuition. And you're talking about the values and the way that you, you know, the culture and, and the, the way the, the thoughts are things and the way that you guys operate and how tight you guys are. And, I think that's so much more important than our five-year plan or our 10-year plan. And I'm not saying we don't need that, but the reality is if we just lean into those things that just make us great humans, like you're saying, my life 10 years ago, I could have never planned it this great. And so it, I, like, it causes me to think like, what's my life going to look like in five years or 10 years? And as long as I keep doing the right things and don't get so stuck on my 10-year plan, it's probably going to be amazing. You're absolutely right. Right. And you're talking about these things that, again, speak to our tribal biology. Mm. Right? Self-determination theory says to truly be happy in your life, you need three things. To be competent at what you do, which clearly where you've, arri you, you've arrived at in life, you are. Okay? Um, to be content, to be, uh, excuse me, to be competent in your life, 
to be connected to others mm-hmm. and to be authentic in your life. If you're those three things, you have what it takes to be happy. Wow. And, and that's what I mean. Like, I, I want to make sure that those are always strong in my life. Because, because like I said, we talked about earlier, the material things are great, mm-hmm. but that's not what I'm after. Yeah. But that's not the stuff that lights me up daily. And, and, you know, we talk about plans and stuff like that. And, you know, I'll leave you with this story. We, I told you we had those two United States Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. And those guys went from zero aptitude to proficient faster than anyone we've ever had. And I remember asking one of them one time, I said, Hey man, how do you, how did you, how do you guys figure this out so quickly? And he, he said, well, we're not 40 percenters. And I'm like, explain that to me. And he's like, I'm like, what's a 40 percenter? And he looks at me and he says, you are right. And I'm thinking in hockey, I'm like, I maxed it out. I was a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percenter in everything I do. And so I was a little bit offended. And then he's like, and he is, and she is. And I'm like, okay, go on. And he's like, through their training, what they found is that as human beings, we are capable of so much more. But through self-limiting beliefs, usually formed from other people's opinions of us, Mm. um, we play at a far less level. And the problem with a lot of us is not that we aim too high and we miss. It's that we aim too low and we hit. Mm. And we go through life at a failing grade, at a 40% grade. Mm. And that's why they call them 40 percenters. And so anytime I think and I'm in a good spot in life, I'm always like, okay, what else can I, you know, what else can I be doing to bring more happiness, more joy, more time, more, you know what I mean? Cause I always now think, okay, am I at 40%? Am I at 50 maybe? Maybe I'm at 60, but I'm always, I'm always, I have that in my head all the time. Now I'm like, take big shots, take, take a bigger shot. You know, you're capable of more, take a bigger shot. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was profound. I, I've never forgot that conversation. So good, man. I'm going to have you back at some point because we can Oh, just... anytime. We've we got to get Mike on here too because that's, that's the smart part of deck leadership. Yeah, let's do that. Let's have a, yeah, let's have a, let's have a group podcast at some point. Absolutely. In time. That'd, be That'd be great. great. Yeah, I love it. So what's the best way for people to find you? Um, to find us, you www.deckleadership.com. Uh, our book is uh, 12secondculturebook.com. Um, we're on Instagram. Uh, Mr. Metcalf Jr., which is Mike, uh, Deck Leadership, and then SW Pete. Um, reach out to us. Even if you just have a question about your team, please. Like I said, we're, we're passionate about seeing this done better, and um, we want you to create a business that people love coming to. Cool. And so your Instagram for deck leadership, is it at deck leadership? Yeah. At deck leadership. Yep. So, so here's what I'm going to do. Cause I just love your guys's message and want to continue to get it out there. So if you screenshot this podcast and you tag at deck leadership and you tag at the Mike Ayala and just put it on your story, I'm going to send the first 20 people that do that a copy of your book. Oh, that's cool, man. Thank you very much. Well, the, the stuff that you guys are doing is amazing. Amazing. I was just mind blown. And, um, you know, even as we're talking, there's this amazing group of guys that, um, I'm part of a group called go abundance and I need to get you connected with them. Cause these are all just amazing guys that are out doing things and, and you guys and your message would, would be great. So we need to figure that out too. Oh, I'll be cool, man. Like I said, there was a, there was a noticeable vibration of, of the group that you guys came in with to the point that when you left, Mike and I were kicking ourselves because Kyle had invited us to be with you guys the night before. We just couldn't make it work through racing. And um, it, th- that's one of the secrets of life, man. Like, like find these people that light you up and go with them. Because yeah. a lot of times they're like, sure, let's go. So good. You know? I love it. I agree, man. I enjoyed this immensely, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, it's been so good. And I appreciate the way you show up, your energy, your love for people and your love for life, man. So good stuff. Absolutely, brother. Thank you.
If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you'd take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.